Hear the word of the Lord from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, and they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Haven't you enjoyed John 17? 
I was, I was telling my, my wife, Eliza, I'm, I'm Matthew, by the way, if I haven't met you. Um, I was telling my wife, Eliza, last night that lingering in this chapter has been just a treat for my own soul because it, it just feels like it gets better and better every week. You know, there's some times you go out to eat and you, you order a dish of food and the first couple bites are really good, but then it kind of goes downhill from there. You know, it's, ah, this isn't always cracked up to be here. Way overpriced. Such is not our experience in the gospel of John, right? You take, you take a bite, it's good. You take another bite, it's better. And it just keeps getting better. So may that be our experience today. I, I think one of the hardest things to do in just about any work context, no matter where you work, is distinguishing what feels urgent, follow, with, follow me here, from what is actually important. So you know what I'm talking about? Okay, somebody said preach it. Yeah, well, that's not the, the verse here, but, but it's going to set us up for something, so hang with me. Whether it's the emails you write or the phone calls you make or the meetings you host or the projects you prioritize, if you take all of your cues, some of you know this, from the loudest voice, or the squeakiest wheel. That is a great way to stay incredibly busy and cripple your long-term fruitfulness. It's true. Some of us are better at that than others. (laughs) Working on that. Because if everything is important, nothing is important. We, we, we kind of get that, or at least at some point you have to get that in the workplace. But, but I think the same could be said true of the Christian life, friends. If I gave money to every Christian organization, good organization, that sends me something in the mail with the word crisis on the envelope, I would be broke. If, if I... <laughs> bought and read every book that every Christian publisher claims is a must read. I would have no time to be a husband or a father. Both of which, by the way, are more important than what I do as a pastor. And I would fare no better if I joined every Sunday ministry team, if I prayed for every prayer request or I attended every Christian event in our community. Now, some of us try, (laughs) and maybe you manage to stave off exhaustion for a few months or a few years. I I think others of us kind of go the other way and just toss our hands up and say, I quit. I, I just don't care about any of it anymore. You kind of become a cynic. Maybe you can relate to some of those categories. I I raise that issue because I think that that one of the most helpful things about the prayer John prays in John 17 here is the way it sets forth priorities for the Christian life. Marching orders, as it were. God's way of saying, this is what matters most. Notice Jesus doesn't pray for everything. He begins praying and at some point he what? He stops. That's significant. (laughs) He he prays for the sake of God's glory. First five verses, especially. He prays for the, the sake of God's people. That's kind of the rest of the prayer. And in that second category, he prioritizes four specific requests. On our behalf as believers, 
What's he pray? What's he prioritize? That we would be faithful to Jesus and holy like Jesus and unified in Jesus and glorified with Jesus. Just look at that for a second. These are our spiritual priorities, friends. If you want to know what is not just urgent, squeaky wheel, even good, but really, really important in God's sight. Your your priorities, Christian. This is the list. These are the things he cares about. Of all the arguably good things we could give attention to, these are the matters of greatest importance. The things that we should care about the most and for which we need to pray, not once or twice, but again and again and again. And I assert that up front because of the multiplication of causes and interests and topics and burdens and fill in the blank. In Christian circles and blogs, there is no end. You know, just like a certain clothing style can be trendy, a certain topic in Christian circles can become trendy. And we don't want to react to that by just, well, I'm not listening to anything. (laughs) Just me and Jesus in the Bible. Now that's arrogant. But we need to know what our priorities are. Better said, we need to know what Jesus' priorities are. So may his priorities always be our priorities. And let's head in that direction by giving attention to his second request that we would be holy like Jesus. We, we talked about the first one last Sunday, we would be faithful to Jesus. Let's focus on the second one here. Yes, the first point I'm making today is gonna to be called point number two. Verses 14 and 19, holy like Jesus. Look at verse 14 as we jump back in. Jesus says, I have given them your word. What kind of word is he talking about? Well, it's, it's the word of the gospel. In context, it's it's a word of salvation from sin and death through faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And what, what happened to Jesus' disciples as a result of hearing and receiving that word, the word of the gospel? Did they did they pocket their get out of jail free card so that they could pull it out and hand it to St. Peter? at the pearly gates on the final day. No. Now here's what happened, friends. Their their identity as human beings was fundamentally transformed. Receiving the word of the gospel did something. It didn't just arm them with something for a, a future day. It changed something about who they were right then and there. They went from being citizens of the kingdom of this world to being citizens of the kingdom of God. Look back at verse 14. I have given them your word, the word of the gospel, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Think think about it. Why, Why can't you be a citizen of the People's Republic of China and the United States? Or why can't you be a a citizen of the United States and a North Korean citizen? It's not possible. 
Such a thing doesn't exist. Why not? Well, because the the governing principles and the spiritual loyalties of those two kingdoms are fundamentally at odds with one another. Completely distinct from each other. No no overlap. And the same is true in a, a spiritual sense. That's what Jesus is saying here. Every human being on planet earth is born what? Into the kingdom of this world. Arrayed, as it were, by virtue of our sinful nature, against the authority and rule of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But when you become a Christian and and your, your relationship with God changes from separation to adoption, so does your kingdom identity, friend. You're, you're no longer part of the kingdom of this world. You're, you're part of the kingdom of God. And, and what does Jesus say will happen when our spiritual identity is radically transformed? Well, our, our former kingdom and the people in that kingdom go from loving us to hating us. Well, why do they do that? Well, because at least in theory, Lord willing in practice, our spiritual loyalties have changed. Jesus is reminding us that the word of the gospel is divisive by design. It it separates those who respond to Jesus by submitting to him as their Lord and Savior from those who do not. And and so that means that if you're a follower of Jesus, don't be surprised. Please don't be surprised if you feel like a misfit in this world or a stranger in this world. Don't think something's wrong if people who used to like you don't want to have anything to do with you once you want to have something to do with Jesus. Why not? Because you're not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. What are you? You're an elect exile. You're a stranger in a foreign land. And you should expect Jesus' experience to be your experience. And as that happens, no, no matter how many times you're maligned or misunderstood, remember this, okay? Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you, just like we sang about. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Parvis thinks, man, that would be nice. <laughs> but that you keep them from the evil one. What, what's Jesus saying? That, that we're not abandoned as lone rangers in a, in a foreign land expected to do our, our special forces Christian thing and, and prove our super spiritual status. We, we have an ever-present protector, an ever-present keeper. That's what he's saying. He's, he's reminding us that, that Jesus isn't just in the business of saving his own on the final day. He's in the business of saving his own today, tomorrow, the next day after that, right now. He's our protector. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful right now. <laughs> And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My father beat that verse in my head when I was growing up in this church. I should be able to say it backwards by now. But what a promise that is, friends. It's a good verse to beat in somebody's head. Because the Lord's response to all the trials and temptations 
of this life that we face as exiles is, is what? Not to just yank us out, not yet, but to marvelously sustain and deliver and empower us for the sake of our good and God's glory. That's what he's up to. While we're in the world, he's at work in us. Look at verse 17. What's he doing? Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prays. Your word is truth. This is one of those moments when we need to kind of pull the handbrake working through the Bible. Stop, slow down, think carefully. What does it mean to be sanctified? What's that actually mean? Well, to be sanctified at root is to be consecrated. It means being set apart for for a holy purpose, in this case, for devotion to God's service. And I think we we tend to think of sanctification, which is why I'm saying, let's slow down here. We we tend to think of sanctification or or growing in holiness, growing in godliness as as doing a, a little bit of a better and better job as the days go on, not thinking or feeling or acting the way the world thinks or feels or acts. Get a little better of not doing that. Not grumbling, not lying, not not lusting. Is that biblical? Yes. (laughs) No hesitation there, I hope. (laughs) That's very biblical to not to do those things. But it's half the story, friends. It's half the story. The, The reason... This is Jesus' point. The reason we do not devote ourselves to the world's priorities and purposes is so that we can devote ourselves to God's priorities and purposes. It's not just a, oh, we'll be sanctified. Don't do that. (laughs) Scary monster over there. No, it's don't do that so you can do this. Don't do that so you can be set apart for this. Don't, Don't consecrate yourself for these priorities and purposes. Devote yourself to God. Think of an incredibly valuable musical instrument. Those of you who are musicians like me, like, let's just reach for the top. A Steinway Model D concert grand piano. Slightly over, you know, eight, close to nine feet long. Exquisite instrument. What would you think if a theater company parked that bad boy on a stage like this and used it to support a row of scaffolding or as a makeup table or or as a place to dry wet costumes. Well, after you heard me screaming in the back of the theater, (laughs) you would hopefully realize something is terribly wrong. I mean, no less than if you took a, some of you know what a Stradivarius is? Super crazy violin. If you see one, just don't touch it. No, no less than if you took a Stradivarius and you, and you turned it into a tomato steak. <laughs> or, or you took the same violin and, oh, well, you know, there's kind of working on my floors and you just make it a paint scraper. <laughs> In both cases, what are you doing? Besides just being stupid. <laughs> 
What are you doing? You're, you're taking something that ought to be reserved for a special purpose. Because it's a very special, precious thing. And you're using it for a common purpose. You're, you're not setting it apart for what it was made to do. You're abusing it. Christian, God created you and redeemed you to be holy as he is holy. That's your purpose. Wait, when it comes to living a, a consecrated life, a, a life that's set apart for holy service, that means we need to focus just as much, if, if not more, on what we are doing than on what we're not doing. Which raises the question, how do we know what these God's priorities and purposes are? <laughs> What, what should we be doing? What, what's his purpose for our life? Well, we actually don't get to decide for ourselves in case you were wondering that. And then just kind of throw up some prayers and ask God to bless our selfish ambition train. No, he tells us what his priorities and purposes are, which is why Jesus prays what? Look back at verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Listen, your word is truth. And notice Jesus doesn't say God, God's word is true. As if it conforms to some external standard of truth outside of itself. What does he say? He says the Father's word is truth. It's the standard. It's the norm. It, it defines what is good and beautiful and right. It tells us what God's priorities and purposes are. But it doesn't just give us correct spiritual information. Oh, well, God's priorities and purposes for the average 35-year-old male are... Now, the word of God actually has a sanctifying power in it. It's a consecrating force in and of itself because it is through God's word that God acts in the universe. And God changes your heart and mine. Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus prays or by the truth or in the, in the realm of the truth or under the influence of the truth. It, it furthers and accomplishes God's sanctifying work in our lives as, as the spirit takes God's word and opens our eyes to understand it so that we, we don't just grasp God's priorities and purposes for us, but, but we're compelled to embrace them, devote ourselves to them and and make them our own. Because God's priority and purpose for your life, Christian, has everything to do with making much of Jesus. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I have sent them into the world. To do what? What's your priority and purpose for me in the world? Well, to show the world just how good and beautiful and glorious Jesus is as God transforms our life more and more into his image. That's the why. If you want to know why, Lord, have you not come back yet for your own? It's because God still has a purpose for us in this world. What in the world could that be? It's not complicated. It's to use our lives as he changes us more and more into his image to show the world what he's like. 
That's what he's after. First Peter two, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, just all set apart language of people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of Jesus, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's our priority and purpose? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, not do keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, the things you do do and glorify God on the day of visitation. You you realize that's, that's why personal holiness matters. It's being a godly man or a godly woman in what you think, what you feel, what you do. It, it matters, not just because it's somehow the right thing. Oh, well, I guess I'll just get on board with that because somebody said it's right. That, that is, you won't get anywhere with that as your motive. Nor is it just, well, I guess I'll do that because it keeps me out of trouble with my parents. Or it keeps me out of trouble with a pastor. So so many bad reasons (laughs) why personal holiness matters. Friend, it matters because it is how we glorify God on the earth. That's why it matters. And it would be absolutely impossible for us to do that, to, to devote ourselves to him, had he not first laid down his life for us. Look at verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself or I set myself apart, Jesus says, that they also may be sanctified or set apart in truth. How, how does Jesus consecrate or set apart himself? Well, he does it by going to the cross, dying in our place. And if you know the whole Bible, that shouldn't surprise you. That blood has a consecrating effect. Why do I say that? Well, because under the old covenant, when blood was sprinkled on something, that thing was made holy. It was set apart for God. So, So the priests were sprinkled with blood. And the the tabernacle, God's tent, God's home was was sprinkled with blood. And you know what Moses did when he had gathered the whole nation of Israel around him in Exodus? He sprinkled them with blood. Imagine you're standing there, the word of the Lord is red, and suddenly your face feels wet. Did Moses just do that? (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't God's way of being gross, friend. It sent a powerful message. I would argue it, it shouted something because it, it pointed forward to the blood of Christ that sets us free from the guilt of sin and the power of sin so that we could pull out that get a jail free card and know we're fine on some future random day. No, not at all that sets us free from the guilt and power of sin 
so we could be devoted to God. So we could live for God. If you're a Christian, you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You you have been washed with the blood of Christ. You, You have been bathed in the blood of Christ. Hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience in Hebrews 10 are devoted to love and good works in the same chapter. And so I ask you, friend, what, what are you devoted to? What's your life about? What, let's linger here. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Or what are you just thinking and over and over and over again about when, you, when you're lying in bed at night? When, when somebody else isn't telling you what you need to be thinking about, what do you think about? What, what's your ambition? What, what, what makes a successful week or decade? A sanctified person is someone who is completely devoted, completely surrendered in their life to King Jesus. It's not about staying out of trouble or, or keeping his rules just because, but, but living as a, as a sent one, to use Jesus' language, who's devoted to God's priorities and purposes. Are you living for yourself or are you living for God? Fundamental level. That's, that's Jesus' second request that we would be wholly set apart like Jesus. Let's look at his third request for us. Verse 20, that we would be unified in Jesus. Unified in Jesus. I mentioned this last week, but in verse 20, Jesus transitions from praying in a, in a primary direct sense for the disciples gathered around him his 11 closest followers, to to praying for all who would what? Who will believe in me through their word, he prays. Jesus knows that that the word of the gospel is going to advance throughout the whole earth. He sees it coming in a way these guys don't, but he sees it. And so what's he pray? Verse 21, as that happens, I'm praying for them that they may all be one. I'll be one. He's he's praying, in other words, for our unity as the people of God. Because that's a word that's thrown about in all kinds of other places. Let's go handbrake. (laughs) Think about this, okay? What what kind of unity is it? How does it happen? And what's the point of it? Okay, so what, what kind of unity is it? Well, Jesus tells us it's the kind of unity God himself enjoys. Look at verse 21 that they may all be one, just as Father, you are in me and I in you. Or verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So God has told us that he is, he's what? He's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person of the Godhead is fully God. Which means they're not parts of God that if you put them all together and they have coffee, you get the whole God. No, it it means that the whole being of God is in God the Son and in God the Father and in God the Spirit. 
And though they, they relate to one another in different ways, they share the same divine nature. And they, they mutually indwell one another as a result of that. So where the, the son is present, the father is present. Where the father is working, the son is working. And if you're thinking, there's nothing in my human experience that remotely maps onto that, I'm with you. <laughs> okay? But why should we be surprised? He's not a creature. The unity within the Trinity, the uncreated God, is a unity where the, the persons are distinguished from one another and yet inseparable from each other. They're both three and one. And in fact, you cannot be more unified than God himself is unified. What what did God tell Israel in Deuteronomy as a foundation stone of his nature? I, the Lord your God, am one. I'm one. That is the kind of unity Jesus prays we would experience as the people of God. So, how does that happen? (laughs) We'll look back at verse 21. Just as, Father, you are in me and I in you, that they also, the people of God, may be in us. Friends, God doesn't just set the standard of unity. Hey, y'all. Be one as I'm one. Figure it out. (laughs) No, no. It's something that he brings us into by drawing us to himself. And not just drawing us near to himself, but bringing us within the very life of God. He brings us into his own glorious unity through the Holy Spirit who, who unites us to God the Son and applies all the merits of his saving life to our life. And so the the spiritual glories and and blessings and privileges that God the Son enjoys become what? The spiritual glories and privileges and blessings that we enjoy as people who have been united to God the Son. His life becomes our life. His victory becomes our victory. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And and through the gift of adoption, think about this. His identity as a son of God becomes yours. As adopted sons and daughters of the father, we become, when we're united to Christ, members of the family of God. You ever put that on a resume? (laughs) How could you? How would you even explain that? That's amazing, friend. We, We have... Do you realize Jesus is your older brother? If you're a Christian. And that when you're united to Christ, through the work of the Spirit, you, you suddenly find yourself, we, we suddenly find ourselves with a multitude of brothers and sisters 
in Christ. That, that's not just a like cool chummy way. Hey bro, hey sis, to refer in a casual good vibes thing <laughs> to other people in the church. Which is partly, by the way, why I cringe a bit. Sorry for the hobby horse. You know, when I hear people call guys, hey, bro, hey, bro. And I think that's loaded with spiritual significance if you're thinking about that word rightly. If you're a Christian, look around because everybody in this room is part of your family. Some of us think that's really cool. Some of us are like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. (laughs) His identity as a son becomes our identity. You're united to God through Christ by the spirit. You're united to his family, to his people. You can't have it going tight this way without being tight this way. So that has really important implications for our unity. And here's where I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. First, true unity is a fruit of the gospel. Okay? As Christians, we're we're united to one another the moment we're united to God. To be a Christian is to be a member of the body of Christ. So, when we speak of, of pursuing unity or working for reconciliation, we are never creating something new. We're striving to maintain Ephesians 4. We're seeking to live in the good of Romans 15, something Jesus has already won for us and granted to us and secured for us. And when we remember that, that that unity is something that, that God creates, the work of living in the good of that remains easy and the burden light. But if we drift into thinking unity is something we have to create, listen, through listening more, we're lamenting more, we're understanding more, as valuable and important and necessary as those things are, we, we can begin subtly, but, but in reality, to, to carry a weight that only the Son of God can bear. At the deepest level, where, where it really counts, you and I cannot reconcile or unite anyone. But we can point them to the God who can, friends. And then we can fight together to, to live more faithfully in the unity that he has won for us. That, that there is quite a bit of conversation these days about the work of racial reconciliation in particular that I fear ascribes way too much power to men and withdraws it from the king. I'm not saying that we just sit around, wait for it to happen. I am saying that we have to remember we don't create it. We're simply fighting to live in the good of what God creates. Those are different. You get that wrong, you're going to pursue reconciliation of all stripes. And it's going to kill you. And you're going to live your life and read all the books thinking, why do I just feel like it's never, ever enough? It's not his yoke, friend. It's a fruit of the gospel. 
not your work. Here's the second implication, okay? Because unity is the fruit of the gospel, it is not the result of voting in the same way or having the same convictions about wisdom issues or being in the same season of life or sharing the same pastimes or having the same life experiences. Okay, which, which is why our, our small groups in this church, our, we call them community groups, are not affinity groups. Okay, where, where you, you try to have, well, let's get the married people over here and the single people over here and the, the old people over here and the young people over here. Because, you know, um, that's what Jesus was doing. <laughs> no, no. Unity in the church and the kind of community we pursue as a result should be glorious in its diversity because it's common faith in Jesus that brings us together not our season of life. Doesn't mean it's inappropriate. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying to have a gathering of singles or something, okay? But, but the essence of our community should not be, well, yeah, I do community. I run with all the people that are like me. That's not community, not gospel community. God, deliver us from trying to baptize the tribalism of our age by sorting ourselves into groups of Republicans and Democrats in the church. We're homeschoolers and public schoolers. We're Latino families and white families. We're seasoned believers and new believers. Or are you ready for this? Mask and vaccine lovers and mask and vaccine haters. That is not a reason to leave a church or to join a church. If we begin to unite around those things instead of our shared life in Jesus, we are not just abandoning biblical unity, friends. We are crushing and sacrificing and undermining the ultimate biblical purpose for our unity. Look at verse 23. May they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you realize our, our unity in Christ isn't just like a, a, a kumbaya flag <laughs> that we wave around because, yeah, we all want to have a sense of belonging. No, it, it doesn't have a feel-good aim. It has a missional aim. Our, our unity makes much of the power and glory of Jesus. How's that work? I think it works like this. When, when the world looks at the church, Lord Willing looks at Kingsway and, and sees a, a diverse group of people loving one another, serving one another, long-suffering toward weakness, forgiving sins, rejoicing in, sor- rejoicing in triumphs, grieving sorrows of a people marked by, by gratitude, not grumbling, Generosity, not selfishness, and and demonstrating in in a thousand ways that we're living for a glory far greater than ourselves. What does the world start to conclude? You know what? Maybe that God is real. Maybe he's real. Maybe God is among them. Maybe the love that they're saying he has lavished on them in the gospel isn't a joke. Maybe it's real. How else could such a very different group of people live in close relationship with one another? 
You, you realize true biblical unity begs that question by God's design because it has a missional aim, one, which means one of the best things you can do, friend, for a non-Christian friend is to invite them to join you in spending time with your Christian friends, with Christian community. Why? Because it's, it's through the testimony of our community, what they see in the way we do life together, that they'll see Jesus. That's Jesus' point, that, that our unity as a church matters because our gospel witness matters. And the reverse is true. If our unity begins to fragment or break, then the integrity of our witness is shattered. It's why you shouldn't look for a church filled with people who are just like you or think just like you on every conceivable issue. It's why, it's why actually working through and, and navigating well and seeking to resolve conflict in the church is so important. And that we don't run away when relationships are messy. It's, it's why we're not an independent, isolated church. I could just keep piling on. <laughs> this is a big deal. What, what are we? Well, we're part of a denomination that, that seeks to give institutional expression as much as possible to our unity in Christ through shared fellowship and mission and governance. It's why we do all of those things. A, a church will not make it more than a few years in our God-given mission, let alone the 32 years we have existed, unless the members of that church are committed to contending for unity, even when it's hard. And as I say that, and as I was thinking about this week, friends, I cannot say that without thanking you. I have to thank you. Because this room is filled with men and women who have made serious relational sacrifices to keep loving each other in season and out when it would have been easier emotionally to just pull away. Which is frankly why we actually have a powerful gospel witness in this community. And to be very frank, I would argue that (laughs) When you're rocked by a messy split or a sexual scandal, but the church is struck down and yet not destroyed. I would argue that it's then and perhaps not until then that the people in the community watching that church begin to think, Maybe they're onto something. Maybe that Jesus thing is actually for real. That's why I'm still here. Because something supernatural is happening. When we have a multilingual conversation where we build a multi-generational friendship or a family with young kids invites a, a single adult or an older widow or widower over for dinner. What's happening? Well, when the world sees the love we have for one another, 
they'll see the very love that God has first shown us. A love that first existed within God himself. In other words, they'll, they'll see the Savior who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The Savior's second request is that we would be unified in Jesus. Here's his final request. Point number four, that we would be glorified with Jesus. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That is a stunning request. (laughs) So short. Stunning. But in order to grasp that, we need to realize that's not a new desire on God's part. He's actually reaching all the way back to the beginning of the story. Okay, to a, to a mountain sanctuary in Genesis 3 where the, where the first Eden, where the first man and woman sinned, they disobeyed God's law. And God came looking for them. And God called out to them, where are you? What's behind that? Well, well his, that's the response of pain and longing for relationship loss which is why he sent Jesus to to deal with the sin that that separates us from God and from one another. It's why why the story of redemption ends on another mountain sanctuary, a new mountain sanctuary, where we're told what? In Revelation 21, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do, Do you realize, Christian and non christian God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Do you think of God that way? As someone who loves you and and longs to to thrill your soul with the sight of his glory and goodness. There's no greater joy than that, friend. The way a a fish was made for water, the way a, a bird was made for the air, we were made as created human beings to behold and delight in the glory of God. That's what we were made to, to swim in, as it were. We're not created for redeemed for fading glories on the earth. Heaven is our home. Because it's only when we get home and when, when faith becomes sight and the, and the glory of the risen king fills our eyes, only then will our homesick hearts be fully satisfied. Father, I desire that they also may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory of heaven isn't just bad things gone. Okay? It it is the glory of the eternally begotten Son of God. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, loved by the Father from eternity past, And years later, God gave the Apostle John a vision where he describes him this way. Listen. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was it was like the sun shining in full strength. You realize when he writes that, John is trying to capture a glory that just defies description. He's like this. He's like that. But by the end, what's really clear, Jesus isn't exactly like anything or anyone else. Why not? Isaiah 46, 9, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. We we don't deserve the satisfaction of seeing God's glory, friend, let alone being with him. Why, Why would God choose to reveal his majesty to his enemies? Why why would he choose to to make a way for enemies to be with him? It's because he's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love because he he delights to display his glory by bringing sinners home. So, So know this, if we are faithful to Jesus, if we are united in Jesus, if we are holy like Jesus, then this we know, a day is coming when we're gonna always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Jesus ends his prayer in, in verses 25 and 26 by really reaching back to where he began. With his passion for the knowledge of the glory of God to fill the earth. And in many ways, if you look at these last two verses, he summarizes the story of the universe. So check this out. There is a righteous father, a living God who created all things and and rules all things with perfect justice. We are all accountable to him. And though the world was created by him, the world does not know him. We've all turned away. We've all sinned. But there is one who knows him his obedient son. And in his great mercy, he came to earth, to our broken, sin-ravaged world to make God known. And Jesus makes God known through his life, but ultimately through his death. It's a saving work he accomplished while he's on earth. And it's a saving work he's still accomplishing as he intercedes for his people in heaven through his word and by his spirit. And if you know Jesus, If you've surrendered your life to him, then know this, the goal of his work in your life is nothing less than perfect conformity to the image of God. He wants the love the father has for the son to be the perfect love we have for one another through the joy of intimate relationship with God now and forever. That's verses 25 and 26. (laughs) That's our story. We've been caught up in his story, friends. We are the answer 
to Jesus' prayers. And anything good in us, any way, any measure to which King's way is faithful to Jesus and holy like Jesus and unified in Jesus and by God's grace one day glorified with Jesus, to whatever degree all of that comes to pass, it will not be to the praise of our glory, but to the praise of Christ. Because this church for whom Jesus is praying is his workmanship. From first to last. So that as Paul says, in him, he might be preeminent. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have prayed these things for us. Because <laughs> these are not little prayers. These are not hallmark prayers or thoughts and prayers or fluffy wishes or best life nows. These are your glorious priorities and purposes for our life individually and for our life as a church. And so Lord, I pray that as we sing this song to you, that you would do again what you have prayed the Father would do and what you are faithful to do through your word and by your spirit in our midst. We ask that you would please keep us faithful to Jesus. And please make us holy like Jesus. And please keep us unified in Jesus. And please bring us home that we could be glorified with you, Jesus. We long for that, Lord, and we thank you that it will surely come to pass because the Father's answer to your prayers is always yes. Amen.